Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. All right. Hey, everybody. How's it going? It's pretty good. Good. Yeah, nice. I like a responsive audience. I um I thought of a joke on the in the car on the way here and immediately decided it was more important than everything that I wrote down. I'm gonna introduce Mason in a second, but I'm gonna dawdle. I thought it'd be really funny if someone titled a book My Word and uh and that's all. That's what that joke is. Um God. You know when like your nervousness and the amount of coffee that you've drunk like smash together like waves. Um why are we here is the first sentence I wrote down. And then the second sentence is, why the hell are we here? Um, why do we read writing out loud? And why do we gather to listen to it? It seems a little self-indulgent, like we're showing off. But I would rather believe that it's an attempt to connect to something that's much deeper, these older roots that writing has planted in us. I realize I'm going to interrupt myself. Um, I've been teaching a class where I grade students a lot on um, making unsubstantiated claims. It's going to be a lot of unsubstantiated claims, so I just hope this is a trustworthy face. Uh, the progenitors of what we're doing here today are storytelling and song, and these were originally oral traditions. The story is spoken and it's remembered, and in this way it exists only in memory and air. When we read something out loud, it controls how and when we breathe. For those of you who are into yoga and meditation, you know how breathing is so connected to the body, the mind, the heart. Um, when we read something out loud, it controls how we move our mouths, and if we let it, it can control how we move our bodies. When Mason Boyles told me he was working on a story about, quote, mushrooms, dolphin linguistics, and a North Carolina septic tank dynasty, I thought, well, I censored myself here, but I'm going to undo it. I thought, fuck yeah, this is exactly my vibe. What I didn't expect was the way that his language would take hold of my breath, my body, that it would do weird stuff as it bounced around in my brain. Consider this excerpt from what Mason sent me. Quote, by November, they just left up the storm shutters. The snakes were acting up, which meant so was Sako. Deha said it was the year of them, too. The kitchen wall was scaled with recycled zodiac calendars, 65, 89, 77, all snakes. On the days hexed with X's, Sako went spraying. In those four sentences, Mason uses 25 of the 26 letters in the alphabet. It's insane. I'm going to do one more quote. A little later on, he says, The PhD led her to the totem. She'd gone on grant to Urungwe to correlate Mamba's jaw angles with venom doses. You'd never seen sorghum like they had there. You didn't even know what sorghum was, she said. You dunce, bolt, you plebe, probably. The point, at some point, she'd put down her protractor. I've been trying to think of an apt metaphor for the feat that I feel Mason is pulling off here. And people are laughing at me because I think I got a reputation for using like really drawn out metaphors. Um, but here we go. The first thing that came to mind, and it's truly the first thing that came to mind, is that it's like he's doing close-up magic with rocks instead of cards. <laughs> it shouldn't be possible to be so graceful and deft with things that are usually so heavy and unwieldy. Sounds that are so weighty, so unignorable, should be awkward to pick up, 
to arrange, to make appear and disappear. In Mason's writing, sound is here and then it's gone. The magic is in how Mason manipulates our movement across the line, the sentence, through sound. Charles Olson said the line comes from the breath. Robert Frost says that writing should be like a conversation heard through the door. You should be able to feel what it means even without being able to understand the words. If writing only existed on the page, something would truly be lost. This is especially true when it comes to writing that is as sonic as Mason's. If it is like close-up magic with rocks, it is also like a rock tumbler that over the course of a few pages rolls those rocks over and over until they're polished into gems. I invite you to really hear Mason, to let his language into your body. Let it do weird things to your brain. And in doing so, let it move you. Mason Boyles. Wow. Um, thank you, Daniel. <laughs> um, looking forward to falling short of that. Um, Pap gave her a name that Mama couldn't speak. She chopped and she tilted it, called her Treese. Treese became that name's shape. In the crumbled yacht club where they lived in Chirios, she'd grown up and in, learning to dress wounds with the weapons they came from. Mama taught her what to call everything, calling no one anyone in faulty English. Your papa go with anyone to Barranco, Trice, look my face, see me not believe. Pap called no one anything as a tactic. It was how he accounted for himself. Baranco, with them at the hostel. Ellas, Mama said. Pap kept his pronouns in English to neuter gender. He kept his hands on Trice's shoulders, helping her climb the wings. He took Mama on flights before fighting. He still used the hang glider that he fell to her from. They went north toward the Larcomar and New Yacht Club. They went south toward the Monet and La Herradura. Trice looked down into two types of boats, toward the Monet, the fishermen's halls brainy in nets and still flapping, sculled in the dinghy's curled cedar over the Yacht Club, virgin weaves and sunburnt scalps like chess pieces. The weave's busts looked like the swell of a night below the throat latch. The bald heads made gleamy pawns. Pap's hand was the thing moving him by his own estimation. He kept his left dangled at a wave, his long forearm cast off the side of the cockpit. He kept Treese in his lap until her legs grew enough that her crotch blocked the control lever. Mama rode in the back seat half standing, explaining. The bald heads belong to the alcaldes of San Juan and Chorios, abogados, professores from the institutes in Cerco. Mama called the women who stumped them tocones. She read their scalps from a bird's eye, pointing each out to trees, mira chica, sus lineas. The grown roots met the dye, the dye met the weave. Mama gleaned ages from their hairlines like a tree's rings. She filled the world they looked down on with names of things. The fish were called drum and blinny. They were called carboneros or grunts. They were scaled and limed and delivered to the tacones on shine China, translated by plates to ceviche.
Pap called China Cheney. He said ceviche to spite her. That ins plum crazy, Pap would say, when the coast pouted out to the chin cliff where the monk disrobed and dove daily in haunt of Friar Francisco's fatal leap. That sopped blot of burlap looked more thimble than bishop. What game was Pap playing, chess or monopoly? The beachfront was a grid of ditched and charred properties. To the south, where the coast gulped, was La Herradura. The burnt hotels looked like things washed ashore, the belched shells of bivalves rimming the bay. If you saw a hole in a conch, that was where the gastropod's tongue had pierced it. The hotels were full of these. They were burnt roofless, smoldered to the blueprint. Galatos howled up from the foundations, their hairless hides looking victim to the same fire whose smoke stains lapped the bricks. The coast looked like charcoal. Shore breaks sizzled on the rocks. Mama said all of this used to be shiny. She and Abram would carry swimmer's stuff past the tide line, fishing for soles under the cover of saving backpacks from the sea. Then dredging sucked the beach back, stole the sand. Even before the fires, those resorts had been ditched. The wealth was phototropic, north inching. Larcomar was the new rustica, which had been the new sombrias, which had been for a short time the new eradora. The new yacht club was the old yacht club in between. Mira, chica. Soon there will be sand and callao. Pap would crane the glider through a slow asymptote, close enough to the cliffs to twitch the gulls' nests with their breeze. Don't look me, Mamad say. Don't crash. I need friends first. Anybody will miss me. In every aspect, she meant the opposite. Years back in the crumbled yacht club, their meeting, Pap's glider sank star shot above her, burning corkscrewed toward the sea fire all down the left wing. Pat bailed and landed on top of her, a bruise of a present. He jumped for the cushion of bags where she'd been sleeping. All Mama saw was molars. Pap was still clenching the cigarillo in his teeth. His fall had broken eight bones between. Mira, chica. Just a smile. Besides that, I saw anything. Mama's thumb had healed crooked. That bent digit still snagged when Pap, when their truces ended, fish hooking his fingers every time he tried to pull his hand free. The glider was charred too. The cockpit seats were mildewed from the ocean where it landed. The left wing was a mural sheet of patched canvas. Pap claimed it flew lilted due to the poor thread count, updraft slipping through the linen's loose weave. Either way, he brought them down, sex soft on the beach. The wheels would lick the beach with a jolt so gentle it felt more like dampness, the light pressure like sweat on Teresa's thigh backs, perspiration just dewed from her pores, freshly eked. Should have gone in for duck, Pap would say. To this, Mama would say, Gallinoso, excuse us. Pap would climb out of, would climb out of the glider before turning to spit on her. Mamad wipe her forehead, suck his saliva off her fingers, and Pap would be holding Trees by the armpits while all of this happened, 
clutching her like a pawn he was still assessing the threats toward, not ready to settle his move and let go of the peace. If he could, he'd have castled her, put a rook between them and Chirios, brought Tris back to Smithfield to live like a king. Instead, he sang her his home state, that old Flatfoot song, Cripple Creek. Mama would go for the garden when he started. The cactus took the you out of you. The hongos put you in your roots. Mama took the cactus, the San Pedro, and unspined an arm's length. It took seven hours to boil and brew. Was she fleeing from the song's words or Pap singing them? He spat his home out with them. His voice had tar in it. Pine pitch and the roll of the Piedmont and the sharpness of dune wind, the harsh barge of sand serrating a breeze. Gainoso, excuse us. You're anyone. Look me. Pap's kind of tallness didn't suit him. He was coal-eyed and no-shouldered, thus called Gainoso. He moved how those birds called at a croup, and yet women leaned. Bricheras, Mama called them the San Pedro drooping her. She slouched in the cockpit, talking Pap down to the low place she was living from. What Gainoso had was la energia de gran polla. Trice knew it in her legs, in his lap, before she even felt the unnamed want to rub herself. She knew it in the cockpit, in the beach, in her sleep. When she did find that want, rolling Mama to her side to keep her tongue from choking her as she left herself, feeling her elbow graze the crotch of her jeans. When Therese named and learned the get rid of it, grinding on Mama's arm while she was conked with the cactus sleep. When Therese rubbed until some far and long softness inside her folded down its own crease, it would be Pap's grip she was picturing. She'd understand that was what Mama'd been asking for after glider rides, sucking Pap's spit from her fingers. Siempre caliente. Pap never cooled her. She'd tell Tris fuera, and he'd take it as his own instruction, leaving the ruins with both arms out like shaking wings. Mira, chica. Barranco with anyone. Gainoso spun circles, the cycle on repeat. The, backpacker, the backpackers were Pap's business. At gringo bars and hostels, he advertised a different kind of trip. Hongos, San Pedro, Pantaroso, Conguillo. Follow the flock and see me. His tags on the median of the Malecon pointed them. The splayed sprays of birds with mushrooms under wing. They came steady, the ellas, the them from his excuses. Richeras smoked and ponchoed in baked streams. They ducked under the tarp door at all expectations and hours, ducked under naked, under Pap's wings, ducked under with Mama's grip waking trees. She wielded her at Pap like a crucifix until he knelt repentant at their feet. He'd come to Mama at the far end of a fall, a position she thought it best for him to keep. Gainoso had left his high wire for a hard place. He'd have to soar off, he'd have soared off again long ago if not for Trice. Only Pap used her full name, Beatrice. That word was his own private part of her, a sound that Mama couldn't speak. Daughter, his heart's hobble, great anchor. 
she felt herself trapping him. To be loved wasn't always a happy thing. In the cockpit, to Ayas, over Mama, at her feet, Pap chanted it. Beatrice, Beatrice, never Trice. He called no one anything but her name. Sorry um, for my awful pronunciation. Um, I'm going to apologize again because there's a word here that I'm not familiar with. Um, so last fall, um, I ran into Justine both times that I did laundry. Um, she wasn't doing laundry, uh, but she was on her way to class. I think you're going to teach. Um, and we were talking briefly kind of about our process and how we work. Um, and Justine told me that she, as you do, yeah, um, that she does a lot of kind of note collecting in her early drafting stages, um, just images and sounds and thoughts that she's jotting as they occur to her. Um, and so that when she sits down to compose, uh, it often feels more like she's organizing or finding bridges to link these ideas. Um, and I see and admire the effect of that process in her work. Uh, one thing that I really appreciate about her poems is the way that surprising but precise connections are made, which I think is maybe often the core of what satisfies us about successful figurative language is something that a connection is made, a recognition is made of something that feels right, but only after it's said. Um, and I see this in Justine's work. Um, the hook at the back of a cell phone for a finger, for instance, becomes the fingernails of men, which are left, quote, long to peel and puncture, to prick and pry. There's a tessellating quality to Justine's work, a series of images refracting and amplifying a single theme. So maybe less tessellating than fractal, each subsequent image expands those previous accommodating a larger scale of meaning. Justine grew up in Northern California, but only seasonally. She spent many of the summers and winters of her childhood visiting family in China. She studied architecture at Yale, where she received the Guizhishan Research Fellowship. Her work explores themes of urban-rural separation and her transnational upbringing. She tells me that she's been incorporating research into lyric poems, but puts both of those words, research and lyric, in quotations. <laughs> Thank you. That was so nice. Um, I'm going to be reading um, several poems. Some of them are longer and shorter, and some of them are newer, and some of them are older. Um, Is that good? Okay. Plano girlhood. Acorns. First, they were acorns. Then, bark and the collision dream. My protruding front teeth. Shallow holes, stones as gifts, hallways flattened on approach. Laughter when touched sharply. Something in the eye, rub of metal. Fingers locked into gentle curl. Legs reaching to ceiling seam. Cool suction of wall. 
There was a long strip of tape on the carpet that I was asked to walk on, a wood water park, and squatting down for chives. Light of basketball, sudden purple, of riding a bike, lassoed down the dry hill. We start with gathering, and we end up gathering. I will be different when you are back. Health. My mother wanted me to keep all of my teeth, and now the extra ones are creating problems. At the gym, I watch and follow the women rapidly making many small tears in their bodies, cuts that will heal over in between. What it takes to become toned, to see the muscles define themselves beneath the skin like theories breaching the surface. I will practice in the shower. I will put all the weight on the balls of my feet and say, feel how balanced you are, how still and strong you can be on such small points. Bleeding gums indicate, in the future, I will bleed less, looking in the mirror while the shower runs. And what is more, the sickest part of this is somehow I will also accidentally become strong. I will be more fit for survival. Uh, this is a longer one. Um, I think it might be a part of a series that I'm calling Fremont Misreadings. Um, and it's called U.S. Polo ASSN. I still read it as U.S. Polo Assassin. Big red fleeces from Chinatown with half zips that always broke, snagged my hair. An extra layer in the trunk for when we drove to San Francisco, where it was always 10 degrees colder. My father would rip my zipper up securely, like buckling a seatbelt for me, and sometimes it would clip my chin. Because this had happened once, it could happen every time. Fremont is warmer. In the afternoon, a Chinese woman sits in her Lexus, digging into her mouth with a toothpick. Undercover in her visor and sunglasses and sun sleeves, like extruded scrunchies. Waiting for what? For whom? I get out of our car and wait while my mother browses the medicine shop. Made in USA ginseng. Planted in Wisconsin. Planted? I always thought ginseng was found. The distortions of a Chinese-American childhood. No one knew who you were, and you had a hard time finding the words to describe it. My sister and I thought the Lipton tea packets at the bakery were free. At first, we speak what our mothers speak. After, we learn to speak against our mothers. Maybe this poem should be titled, Some Certain Chinese in America. Maybe that would make it more true. Though, yes, it would still not be disciplined enough. In a similar plaza across the street, there is a Vietnamese restaurant I've been to called Ai Pha, with an apple as the O. This is not Chinatown. In high school, I was very aware of this. Out here, you can see the train pass with its containers. You can see self-storage units and office spaces for lease. In the non-vacant spaces are Indian restaurants and Chinese acupuncture clinics and travel agencies. Chinese are everywhere, my mother advises, or my father. He is more likely to say something like this. So if you learn about Chinese, you can learn about human nature. The bearded guy at REI, when I go to return my tivas, asks me where I've been this summer. I say China. He says, oh cool, are you just visiting or teaching English? Sometimes I think my life is well-timed, like a sitcom. It lacks the lag of reality TV, the slow forward thrust. 
Shame is a preemptive tactic. Guilt comes after. It is the one-two punch of Chinese mothers, a two-pronged offensive. Is this the language of sports? Is this the language of war? Fragment. It seems only the last touches matter. Both parents in the car with the engine started. I pass my hand through the window, transferring all my love through the fingertips. Now they look at me as the car moves back, green-faced and cold behind the glass. I am tapping my lips over and over. But I cannot go back in time, the way my parents can reverse out of the driveway while looking me straight in the eye. Modern methods for peaking duck. There is the microwave method, eight seconds, rotate, and eight more in intervals. The skin stays crisp and evenly heated, thin slices brought out to applause. Flavor preserved with intergenerational recipe. The sign above the door says traditional style, 108 years old brand, peaking local flavor. The ducks hung on hooks for show. It does not, of course, rise to the level of crime, deception, false advertising to the good Chinese consumer, yes. Though this time it is also unpatriotic, which does verge on the criminal. The restaurant has been duly slammed in the online forums. I think of the difference between poultry and a bird. Perhaps, though I haven't checked, the restaurant is now shuttered. The boss, fourth generation imperial chef, has been blacklisted on some list. Auspicious number. At the funeral center, there was a hall number eight, the one my grandmother was in. And there was perhaps, though I did not see, also a hall number 88, a hall number 888, and there was no hall number four. And that was fine, since my relatives did not notice, and I do not know if what I think might be true is true after all. Before the members of my family had left the lobby, the men began to remove the paper characters of her name, hung below the eight. After us, a jaw. The difference between poultry and a bird. For one, an afterlife of microwaves, Numerous new things occurring that could not have been imagined, an electric flavor, a story, litigation on the internet. And for the other, it just stops flying. Fragment. Doing push-ups in the field behind my elementary school, I hope, if I am pressing worms out of the grass, I hope that they surface by my knees and not by my hands. Worms the color of genitals. Mother's home improvement, rearranging the pens with no ink, pushing them to the edges of the desk, toward the wall. What would a father's home improvement look like? Would it involve bricks and wood, hammer and nails, larger pieces laid down to form smooth surfaces? As a result of not knowing, we have many pens that don't write anymore. Uh, four more. Gregorian Lunar Conversion Table. Counting all the bruises I've given myself, wasted pigment, warning lost on me, 
bloomed and faded opportunity missed. One just below my hip, another on the flap of my calf, an inch or two from the ankle. How my hard parts, encased in softness, find the corners of things. I want to tell you how I feel at the park. There is a Chinese grandma wrapped in floral sweater, grandpa bouncing on the balls of his trainers, small child bending the air between them. Graduate students get together in the dormitories to make huoguo, wide pot of fish balls, skin of oil at the top, their napes exposed at the noodle shop. Lips cinched into precious functional circles. Crooked, as if broken, like me, they have an extra plate in their spine, heads hanging from a hinge, chicken bone structure, the extra knuckle, slightly sticky to touch. Mainland Scenic. Imagination emptied, I make demands upon myself, and myself tries to deliver. In the end, it is tourism. I want to go to your village. I find someone at random trying to be urbane, and I undress them as if pointing in a public place in a private way. Leaving the stations near the scenic villages, there is always a child crying and a man who might have once been military shouting in dialect into his cell phone, which is large and has a metal hook in the back for his finger. Now the endless heavy shellacking of interiors to seal all crevices and porous surfaces, the holes that come from haste and time. Even this is skill-based work. Underneath, you hear the oscillating clear water melodies of the south or the shouting into the wind of the north. Looking at my married friend in the light of the train window, I take my hair down and she takes her hair down too. Talking, I am in a grove of concrete columns, each a word that is not quite right, running through this, in, running through this constructed shade. She shakes her hair down too. Poverty is a pair of pants you can take off. Men leave their fingernails long to peel and puncture, to prick and pry. Um, this one is two sections. Um, it's called Guangzhou Transfer. One. A holiday and a Friday. Too many people. Black heads funneling toward the exit. There is a man in the crowd yelling, what the fuck? And at the same station, another man, prayer hand out, muttering inexplicably his amitabas. I look hard at each body that enters through the sliding doors. Outskirts boys with bleached bowl cuts, sharpened fingernails, shirts spelled sua prem, who return my serrated stairs, emanate heat like soft, wet towels. You can hear the rain coming from a distance, from all the way in the countryside, like a heavy chain being laid slowly across the ground. Listen, sleeping in this position, have you only gained a partial understanding? Blood flown to one half of the brain, as when you can hear only one side of a phone call in the living room. Two, I have turned this city into my sick bed that hoary pitch of laughter reserved for immortal women in the period dramas of late afternoon. 
like all families, we have dealt in guilt. The summer is sticking to our skin. We smell unlike ourselves, like buses that have passed us, like lottery numbers on the street. Every bottle of iced water is made by taking the heat out of it and depositing it somewhere else. In this constant construction, we must increase the volume of our voices. It's not that we want to be loud. Young service workers flirting, girls slapping the forearms of guys. You cannot be too curious or open to things. Your eyes might land on a welding spark. A drop of water reminds you of the part in your hair. My misused brain. Thunder cracks in the sky, a noble sound. And this is the last poem. Revision. It was far more natural than we thought. The creature who strained his neck could pass it on. Higher and higher on the tree, we would not have to start over each time. It was a memory or a rush of blood to the same joints. Movement in a sheath of skin, subtle fluid, unfolding limb. Tendons pulled apart so the air entered in. What was it? A loosening of the will. Cartilage opened. There was a sense that your head could leave your body one small tear at a time. Then your knees went weak. They often do. Hair no longer brushing the shoulders, brushing them again. We still have dreams of reaching it to wake up longer. Irritable and resisting. Disappointment transferred. Never born with, no abnormality other than a hunger that would not end. How else to talk about our love for names, the desire to depart while standing still, until we teach the frame to fall, all the way down to the softest science. I'm happy to introduce Catherine Dam. She is one of those endlessly kind and resourceful people who have been putting together our MFA reading series. Um, and she's a second year fiction writer in the program. Here's a quick timeline of Catherine's life. Catherine grew up in Philadelphia, attended a Quaker school, studied literature at Harvard, and then had a cushy modern day governess job in New York before coming to California. Every few weeks, she says she remembers that she lives near a beach and gets excited. I'm not sure if she goes to the beach or just stays excited. Um, another fun fact is that she minored in economics, which apparently justifies her to set prices based on supply and demand and predict how a rational actor would behave in lots of situations. At first glance, Catherine's work seems light, even cheerful, which I think is rare in contemporary fiction. Catherine's characters are worldly and narrow, true of anyone who identifies as a, quote, young adult. The people in her stories often strike me as recognizably hilarious and doomed because they're quite unaware of their own limitations. I'm taking a video, says one of the adolescents, Ashley. Do something funny and I'll stop. Do something funny and I'll stop. Sean, do something funny and I'll stop. Mixed in with the numerous quips and jokes that, as you'll soon hear, tie themselves up so quickly that Catherine is on to the next sentence by the time you start to laugh, there's also a propensity for stating difficult things as if they were just matters of fact. In her story, Hallelujah, out of a population of petty high schoolers who, as she writes, feel about 80% of what they hope to feel, larger stakes emerge. 
A high school girl trying to be discreet is of course seen by the whole class as she leaves with, quote, a tampon hidden against her wrist like a switchblade. Other serious questions come up, like in the same story, is it true that there's more graffiti in girls' bathroom stalls because girls sit down to pee or because they're socialized to carry a lot of pens? Last quarter, Catherine and I took a class together, and for that, she wrote a piece called Animal Facts. I loved it. As the title suggests, it was a frank and darkly funny series of vignettes from the point of view of something like a combination of nerdy child and elderly scientist. The prose was clean and bright, and yet there was somehow a shadow of what can't be said, of what is missing. I have no idea what she's reading today, but I'm excited. So please welcome Catherine Dam. Thanks, Justine. That's great. Um, okay, so I'm reading an excerpt from a longer story. Uh, and this story is about a girl named Victoria, and she really needs a win um, <laughs> just in her life. Uh, so she's resolved to find love by the end of the weekend. Um, and the scene picks up right after a lackluster first date with someone named Harry Rivers, um, where she actually liked the bartender who was serving them more than the person that she was meeting. Um, so I've just said goodbye. Harry went left and Victoria went right. She started towards the subway, past the barcade and the Rite Aid and the 24-hour laundromat with its smell of linen, cleaned and heated. A man leaned out of a bodega doorway to tell her she had a nice face and she glared. She could see how Harry Rivers had been on so many first dates. For one, he'd gone on at length about how many first dates he'd been on, a self-fulfilling prophecy if there ever was one. Then that comment about a bosomy patient he'd seen, too sexual and the fraternal jealousy he'd alluded to, too vulnerable. Plus, the sleepy affect, she wished she could tell him in a friendly way. Every single one was an easy fix. And if Harry Rivers were so clear to her, maybe the reverse was true too. Maybe he could tell her why she kept getting left. When it first started, it could be freely accounted for by her choice of partner. Commitment phobic, immature, the explanations came easily. But the last relationship had been different, and its difference cast out all the way backwards. They'd met each other's families and spent holidays together and had their own shared lexicon. For example, the way the syllables had jumbled together one sleepy night when he said, I love you, made the words sound like mew. And so that's what they said from then on. Until, at some point, Victoria realized they hadn't said the real thing in weeks, climbed on his lap, and said it. Mew too. No, I love you. Mew too. Two weeks later, they broke up. <laughs> His reasons were always vague when their relationship had been so specific. She kept reaching out, asking him for another, better explanation, until during one midnight call, he said, you push until you get your way, Victoria. Like right now, for example, I'm done talking, but you're not, so we talk. Sometimes you push a little, and sometimes you push a lot, but you are always pushing. Well, she didn't call him again after that. She kept a tally in her mind of how long it had been, like a sign boasting days without a workplace accident. <laughs> she knew what she was like, but what was so wrong with wanting? What was so wrong with visible desire, visible effort? Over one of their weekly meals in high school, her father told her, your mother's family has some Calvinist thing going on where they treat success like grace. You don't earn it, it's just bestowed upon you. Never fall for it. It just means they think it's ghost to admit all the string pulling they're doing behind the scenes. At that thought, she went back around the block to talk to the bartender. I remember, it was Thief, the thermal lance scene, she announced. Choose your prize. 
He gestured to the taps. She used the version of nerves as propulsion. Actually, would you want to get a drink sometime with me, somewhere where you don't work? Oh, man. He tripoded his arms on the bar, the geometric shapes of his tattoos appearing to levitate along his forearms. I'll give you a qualified yes. A friendly drink, sure. A date, no can do. Fortunately, unfortunately, I'm happily coupled up. Figures. You didn't hit it off with your friend? I did not. At least the feeling was mutual. He looked apologetic, then inspired. Wait, hey, if you're looking to meet someone, I've got a buddy. He's the greatest guy. I've been trying to think of someone to set him up with for a while. What's he like? He's just good, smart, funny. He's trying to do comedy. I'm not sure I can do any more creative types. Well, he's funny, but not like wacky. Why is he single? I'm not sure. He has had girlfriends, though. What's his name? Daniel, and I'm Andrew, by the way. They shook hands across the bar. Victoria, Vicky? Never. <laughs> Chemistry was a terrible thing, untethered as it often was from availability. She looked for the least attractive thing about him and settled on his unkempt nails. It barely changed anything at all. I'm seeing him tomorrow at a party. Come meet him, no pressure. I won't even tell him it's a setup. The subway back to Brooklyn was mostly empty, but a 20-something in sheepskin-lined Crocs and a professional smoker flat brim walked all the way down the car to seat himself wordlessly beside Victoria. After a flare of indignation, she realized he'd done it to shield her from a man relentlessly adjusting his testicles a few places down, and she was grateful. Saturday was rainy. When she left her apartment in the morning and looked up at the clouds, the tall man who hung out on the corner yelled, you need an umbrella. I have one, it's in my bag, she yelled back, showing him. Oh, he said, I didn't see your bag was that big. <laughs> the conductor shut the door on two people who boarded at the last second and didn't release them for a full 10 seconds. The whole city seemed to be in a bad mood. The subway track was elevated between 7th Avenue and Carroll Gardens, with a view of downtown Brooklyn in one section and downtown Manhattan in another. The wet, air was, the wet air desaturated the buildings, giving them a dreamy, half-realized quality. She was going to an audition, and her hair would be frizzing an inch out. At Bergen Street, a woman in tortoiseshell glasses pushed a lime green stroller over the gap into the car. Once seated, Victoria could only see the back of the woman's head, but she could look directly into the stroller, where a little girl lay, also wearing glasses, hers bright pink. The girl's head was lolling, her mouth agape, her limbs at slightly odd angles. Victoria tried making faces, but the girl didn't respond. She wasn't looking at her mother either, who rested her head on the stroller's covered handle, talking or singing too quietly to hear. The mother touched the girl's lips with a felt frog, which Victoria realized was a finger puppet. The mother withdrew a pig finger puppet too and danced them in front of the girl, who didn't seem to track them with her eyes, but nevertheless slowly reached out and touched the pig with her hand. At last, the girl smiled. So briefly, either at the mother's salvos or at the faces Victoria was making over her shoulder. The woman slumped a little with relief. Victoria sighed too. The girl stuffed her hand in her mouth, cried a little, and went back to being unresponsive. Victoria wondered if theater wasn't the stupidest thing in the world. The audition was in a midtown building that was half practice spaces, half sweatshops, according to plausible rumors. And Victoria waited with other 25 to 34 year olds in a rented room. She had several versions of her headshot, smoldering, comic, pleasant, wry, and she used whichever one she thought most fit the role she was trying to get. The photos cost her $350, and there had been no return on the investment yet. 
Today, the pleasant one was stapled to her resume, on which the most impressive roles listed were from college, a fact that became more damning each month. <coughs> she looked at the glossy photo, trying to evaluate it as a stranger might. Her teeth were slightly off-center from her philtrum, and she had the desire to shove them over with her fingers. Other than that, she was nearly perfectly symmetrical. She decided that the best modifier for her beauty was competent. She thought that competent beauty might be the worst kind because it didn't mean anything. She wanted her appearance to have, at least have meaning, if not value. She was reading for Nora in A Doll's House, a part she played in theater camp during high school. Her tone was bright when she said, to, said so to the casting directors, but they only nodded stonily. Behind them, curtains were drawn across the mirrored wall, but Victoria could see her face in the gap between the panels. She thought her experience would be an advantage, seeing as she knew all the lines. But instead of thinking about the plight of a 19th century Norwegian housewife, she thought about high school. I have existed merely to perform tricks for you, Torvald, she said, for maybe the thousandth time in her life. Pulling the emotion out of herself, she felt like a clown doing the endless handkerchief trick. The only redeeming feature of the trip into Manhattan would be lunch with her father's sister at the same Upper West Side tablecloth restaurant they always went to. The audition had gone late, and Victoria was spacey with appetite as she walked through the corridor under Penn Station, barely noticing the man clicking his tongue to match the clicking of her boot heels. Aunt Jane had an incredible memory for the details of Victoria's life. What happened to that cheesemonger? He moved to Denver. What about that one you met on the internet? You'll have to be more specific. <laughs> the one with all those tattoos, Victoria shrugged. He disappeared. Isn't it strange to meet somebody online? I guess that's where everything happens these days. It's nice because you know they're looking. I always assumed everyone was looking. When we took the buses to those demonstrations where we laid down on the airfield to protest the bombers dropping mines on Haifam, we were doing it to meet guys. I mean, of course I was against the war, but two birds? Exactly. <laughs> she wished Aunt Jean were her mother. What is with these men in the news wanting people to watch them masturbate into potted plants? Do you know what that is? A power thing, offered Victoria. Aunt Jane broke into a roll with her thumb and reached for the butter. It's the most bizarre thing I ever heard of. You know what it makes me think of? Going to Beth Israel for those fertility treatments when I was trying to have Sammy. There would be these Hasidic men making their wives do the whole battery of tests and treatments because of course it couldn't be the man's fault. But they can't make eye contact with any women, so you'd see female doctors meet them in the waiting room and they'd respond to the potted plant in the corner like it was the most normal thing in the world. That's what it makes me think of. She punctuated her point so emphatically with the roll and knife that she'd hardly made any progress on the buttering. Victoria delicately slipped, sipped her lemon water. Maybe they should have been the ones jerking off into the pot, so a bit of butter flicked off Aunt Jane's knife onto the tablecloth. Yes, so the doctors could finally get a sperm count sample. <laughs> they shook the table with their laughter. A middle-aged waiter appeared with a shim and stabilized it with practiced efficiency. He moved beautifully, and Victoria wondered if he was or had been an aspiring performer. The sun was already setting when Victoria emerged in Brooklyn. The shortest day of the year was a month earlier, but the daylight still felt tightened as if in a vice. When her phone got signal above ground, she saw that the bartender had sent her the details of the party, which was prom-themed and apparently thrown by people who take themes seriously. She was so engrossed that she didn't notice a man coasting next to her on a bicycle until he asked, what's so interesting on that phone? What? Videos of people falling into holes because they're not looking where they're going? Victoria rolled her eyes. Kill yourself, she thought. He'd already pedaled on. She knocked around the house with little purpose. 
She wanted a dog. A dog would be perfect for an empty afternoon, and Victoria had empty afternoons in spades. They'd go on walks together and become known in the neighborhood. The dog would sleep in a circle on her bed, and she'd curl herself around it to watch movies on her laptop. Guests would come over and say, is it all right if I leave my plate on the coffee table? And she'd say, that's fine, she doesn't steal food. Or she'd say, oh yeah, push that way back on the counter, she'll take anything she can reach. It didn't really matter. The joy would be in knowing, in comfortably letting others know. She jumped on Julie, her roommate, when she came home. As it was, Victoria was the dog of the apartment. Before Julie even hung up her coat, Victoria was begging her to come to prom. You'll meet this guy and then you'll ditch me 45 minutes from home. Julie was speaking from experience. I'll buy you an Uber, then it's only 20. That's a stupid way to spend money. But Julie agreed, on the condition that she didn't have to dress up. Julie's silhouette hadn't changed in all the time Victoria had known her. She wore the same crop cardigan she'd worn in college, in increasingly muted colors. And I'm only doing this because you need a win. Victoria pulled her junior prom dress from the back of her closet, and after a dinner of leftover Indian feast, they went. Um, so it is my absolute pleasure now to introduce Daniel Levin, a third-year poet in our program, um, who you've already seen. Uh, and I'm glad for and a little bit intimidated by this opportunity, because as many of you know, Daniel ran the reading series last year, and he is an introducer extraordinaire. Um, in fact, I think it's fair to say that his reading introductions were my first encounter with Daniel's poetry. Hilarious, vulnerable, wildly associative, and in this specific case, incredibly generous to his fellow writers and their work. I still remember images from some of those introductions, the way you remember images from a poem, like a bloody metaphor for a fellow student's work, or a story he told about a dentist's office infested with bees, the very first reading I attended. <coughs> Side note, that was a dentist he shared with fellow third year Rebecca Sachs, and now I go to that dentist too. Uh, it's Dr. No in Orange County, and there are no more bees. Um, so hearing Daniel speak and read aloud, of course, were, were ephemeral experiences, so I felt especially glad to be able to sit and read some of his writing for this introduction. Um, again and again, Daniel would tune into an idea that was true and then somehow make it truer, more self-aware, as when he says after a breakup, every song is trying to talk to you for a while, and then you notice the way you're stretching to make the lyrics relate. In the prose piece he sent me, there was an understanding of the complex way that the past and present meet that Daniel both intuited and then was miraculously able to then put into words. Um, I feel like since it's Daniel, I, I should give a metaphor. Uh, so I think Daniel's work is a little bit like a letter. Um, and a letter is a wonderful thing to receive because it's an object from the past, yet you get to hold it in the present. And I think that Daniel really uh, manages to do that in a lot of his writing, to um, be so present in a way that involves the past. Um, as the real experience of the present does. Um, so I was especially glad to have Daniel's work on paper uh, because there were lines that I wanted to chew over, moments where Daniel danced around a point and then suddenly landed on a declarative statement that rang so unexpectedly true that I had to rewind and play it back. Take this paragraph, for example, after a section describing his older brother as a toddler exploring the woods. This was nine years before I was born and I have always wished the story was about me. I like to believe that I was going out into the woods at three, finding pillbugs under rocks in the stream, fashioning a fishing hook out of a paper clip, putting a rock into the Y of a tree to watch the bark grow around it years later. Mythology exists to create an impossible standard by which to compare our lives. Um, 
so you two would probably like to chew that over, but you can't. This is an introduction. Um, so please put your hands together and then listen very closely. You won't want to miss a word. Daniel Levin. Hey, how's it going? That was really nice. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, it's really nice to have a dentist's office that's infested with bees because it's a perfect excuse not to go to the dentist. And I have not been back. <laughs> it's a problem. Uh, how many people are familiar with Marie Kondo? Do people kind of know? Yeah, she gets claps. Hell yeah. Yeah, we love to tidy. She's like a, you know, a phenom that has somehow managed to, she proves to me that you can be famous for anything, I guess. Uh, and she's gotten famous for tidying. Her book is actually right over there. Um, what about Heartbreak? How many people are familiar with Heartbreak as an experience? Woo! Woo! <laughs> sucks. Sucks. Um, uh, and this thing happens when, you, when your heart is broken where everything is about heartbreak, right? Um, uh, including Marie Kondo, which is what is going to happen in this poem. Uh, it's sort of important, I guess, to know that part of her process, again, I mean, I love Marie Kondo, um, but her process seem, is so deceptively simple, which is that you're just getting rid of things, and you start with books, uh, and then I think maybe, I might get this out of order, I think it's clothes then, uh, and then there's like a category that's just everything else, and then there's a few others, but let me just, um, the other nice thing about having your heart broken is you get licensed to be as dramatic as you want, which I think has been good for my poems. Uh, <laughs> Hence this title. Marie Kondo is the undertaker of attachment. <laughs> I cried in the first three minutes when she said the last step is letting go of sentimental things. It's easiest, it's easiest to be sad. And then it's easiest to be angry. Imagine you're entirely identified with your loss. And then even those ro ropes loosen. And when you look away, your loss is behind you, bobbing like luggage dropped in the river. You round a bend, and it is gone. What then? I am beginning again. That is what I am told when I sit in the room inside my heart, and I ask the wall. Photographs of my past and my future are linked by blue wiring which fires an occasional neon pulse. When I want to die, one side of the room glows unpredictably, like it is trying to tell me something. Don't, I assume, is the gist. I have tied myself up in imagery. Spiders store memories inside their webs like we store memories inside our phones and computers. I only just realized all the pictures of me and her are actually videos. They have sound. The wind whipping her hair across my face as we face away from the ocean. She lifts her leg as she leans against a redwood tree. The room is glowing, glowing. Stop, stop, please. The things I've seen and don't want to remember. The things I shouldn't have looked at but did. And now... That is who I am. For a while, so many people devoted their lives to finding the sources of rivers. Along the way, they ruined everything. <laughs> I need to turn back, not to find my suitcase. I just want the current to carry me to sea. 
I stopped paying attention to Marie Kondo. Now my house is almost empty. What is left is what makes me happy. But so much also has been lost. When she told me she slept with him, it was not like leaving. It was like she had never existed at all. Trying to do, you know, when you're like, can I write the most depressing poem and have it not just be terrible? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I put these poems together, and usually I, like recently I gave, these are part of a manuscript, and there's someone who's really gracious to be reading that manuscript for me, and she's like, so what kind of poems do you write? She's never seen my poems. And I was like, well, I feel like they're funny. <laughs> and then I realized, like, the next day I'd given her just, like, 100 pages of, it's not, there's, I mean, I hope they're even a little bit funny, but God, they are brutal. Um, but this one, maybe. This one's about a camel, but also it's about moving to L.A. Um, you know, classic. Uh, camel drawing. First, I have to remember what a camel looks like. It is already outlandish enough that they have one hump. I can't believe I'm giving this camel two. Do you sit in between the humps or on top of them? I think it's obvious, and then I think it's not obvious at all. Because fat degrades, we don't know if dinosaurs had humps. And future scientists who will, for have some, for, who will have for some reason forgotten the camel might draw it like some kind of weird horse. Not me, though. I'm giving this thing three humps. Why not? I am lying across all of them. The camel does not like it. I should give this camel a little personality. There, he is wearing a party hat. His tongue is sticking out. He is beginning to look more like my idea of a llama, which is apparently goofy on a birthday. Probably this camel's vibe is more determined, a little aloof. He's like, oh, water? I could have some, but I just had a drink a month ago. <laughs> yeah, I like that joke. Uh, this, camel, this camel won't win any beauty pageants, but he will tell you that camel beauty pageants are a fucked up practice. He can feel beautiful without any pattern shorn into his fur. I don't know. I don't mean to demean a practice I know nothing about. That's besides the point. Come back here, camel. Now he is sitting like a human. He has really come to like his new apartment, his new neighborhood. He doesn't quite fit into most of the furniture, but that's fine. His toes have a hard time getting purchased on the wood floors. I don't know if camels have toes, and I just realized that. That's not part of the poem. He is picking up new hobbies. He is trying to mo model his life after the alpaca he met once on a trip to Peru. He has heard that at the mall nearby, they shoot real snow at you, and he thinks about going there because he misses the cold desert at night, sitting on his tail, huddled close to other camels like a bunch of penguins. He misses other camels, basically. His forehe forehead has started to feel a little hard, and one morning he notices sticks growing from his temples. It has finally happened, he thinks to himself. I am turning into a giraffe. He will have to move into an apartment with higher ceilings. He will have to slam his neck into another male's neck for dominance. He rubs his neck. He doesn't want to slam it into anything. He is not interested in seeing the tops of trees or the bald spots on people's heads. He FaceTimes his mom who recently sent him a video in which she pretended to be a lion. It doesn't make any sense, but he thinks maybe she will understand. She doesn't recognize him in the video, so he calls her back on the phone. Who is your friend, she asks. He smacks himself in the forehead and hurts his hand on his little horns. 
He is getting stretch marks on his neck. This is getting weird. I am backing out of this story. Don't worry, the camel is just fine. My mom did actually FaceTime me once and pretend to be a lion, and it was a really weird experience. I don't know what she was thinking. <laughs> um, I don't know if I've appropriately built up to this, this poem. I'm just gonna do two more. Um, uh, I recently uh, sent some, I, I should back up, this was solicited. Uh, a, uh, an, like, ex-girlfriend from many years ago asked me to send her some poems. And so I sent her some poems of, she asked for my poems. Um, and, uh, and she said, you're more comfortable with violence in your poems than you, I remember you being. It's like, this is a bad sign for how my life is going. Um, this is called Wanting. I wish things. I wish impossible things, bad things. Isn't that the point? Wishes reveal the ways we fail ourselves. What we want, riches or power or for you to kiss me again, isn't what's best for us. I want you in my bed, and I want the bed to close around us like a Venus flytrap. I want to be crushed into you and digested by the juices of a plant that doesn't know the difference between you, me, and a fly. I want him to die, and I want you to not be sad about it. I want to be the one that does it. I want to fall asleep. I just want to fall asleep. I want to die. I want to think about you until my head screws off my neck. I want someone wearing a sash to cut my head off by drawing a saber upwards along the surface of my body until it catches my chin and pops. I want people to clap. I want to stop, but I can't. I want a deus ex machina. I want a disembodied voice to explain what I've done wrong, how to move forward. I want to stare into a light so bright, knowing it's a face and go a unique kind of blind, which means I can never see you again, and I can only see you, and I would do anything just to see you. I want an icicle the size of my whole body to drop on my body and split me open like a blossoming orchid. I want to go home. I want to know where that is. I want the future and the past to stop flickering like channels on a broken TV screen. I want to be the Venus and eat you unhandsomely, whole and weak and screaming. I want to count the days backwards from the next time we meet to when my life was empty of you at all. I want to live my life without you bookending it. I want to tug on a book I think is a secret lever, pull and pull until the shelf falls forward, crushing me to death. I want to be the one who cheated. I want to not want anything for a while. I want you to feel all of this instead of me. I want you to want everything I want in reverse, a mirror of my wanting. I want to have won the other end of the wishbone with the jagged tip of that broken little fork, the clavicle I'm actually left with. I want to open myself up and show you what you've done. All right, it's gonna be my last poem. Um, and uh, in, this, in the spirit of these poems not being as funny as I want them to be, this is called Heat Death Manuscript. <laughs> 
I want to like, ex my impulse is to explain what heat death is, but that's probably what the poem should do. But I'm gonna, um, I just got interested. <laughs> it's one of these things where I'm only realizing as I'm talking how obvious it is. So it's like, well, arbitrarily after this breakup, I got interested in the various ways that scientists think that the universe will end. <laughs> <laughs> I see now the connection. I was like, this is just a fun universe poem. No. All right. Uh, uh, I should. Does, do people know what pal a palimpsest is? It's like the. I try not to use words that I barely know in my poems, but then I did that. It's you know. It's like a. a I don't know if it'd be fair to call it a manuscript. It's like a document that's been erased and written over many times, essentially to save paper. Um, I, I may be wrong and sound stupid. I don't know. Uh, heat death manuscript. Let's talk, just for a second about the heat death of the universe. No one is sure, but it's not looking good. All the standard models show everything drifting further and further apart until not even light can bridge the gaps. Heat death refers not to death by heat, but the death of heat. Heat, not insignificantly, is one letter removed from the regularly referred to organ of love. Of course, the opposite is possible. The models are always changing. Perhaps the raindrops will start leaping up out of their puddles. The mud will unsoften into dirt. The mountains will reveal themselves as the mist pulls back its hood. The Lord will turn around towards a man standing there who will tow heel back to a crowded valley where no one is waiting yet. All the while, Galaxies are pulling towards each other, as if arms have swung around them, fingers interlacing. In a final moment, the light is brighter than it ever was, like the thin band that slices through a dark room as a door is closed right before it closes forever. Then it opens again. That is the second possibility. The third, which is never discussed, is neither. A future when we stop running away from each other or towards each other, when gravity and momentum achieve equilibrium. The wave, having reached as far as it needs onto the shore, stops and breathes and breathes. The foam neither evaporates into the air nor absorbs into the sand. Everything pauses forever. Time, which was an arrow, becomes a line, then a dot, then the palimpsest, which had been written upon, then erased, written upon, then erased, is finally, for once, done. Thank you very much, everyone, for coming out. Um, You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.